Welcome to episode 93 of My Circus, My Monkeys. If you're a supervisor, that means you have a team. Maybe it's just a team of one or two people, or maybe you directly and indirectly supervise dozens of people. Either way, we often judge our team members in terms of how well they contribute to the team, aka who's a team player. What this usually means is the people who are going above and beyond are considered MVPs, while people who are just doing their jobs are looked at as less valuable. In this episode, we're going to debunk this idea and talk about just how damaging it can be for both individuals and your team. You're listening to My Circus, My Monkey. The podcast for supervisors in education or any field that emphasizes growth and development. If you want to reign in the chaos and transform your team to better serve your students and clients, keep listening. This podcast explores essential information on supervision, employee engagement, and using a strengths-based framework to empower you and your team. We'll examine the latest research in psychology, neuroscience, education, and beyond to help you and your team get to the next level with your host, Ann Brackett, the Chief Engagement Officer of Strengths University. Now, a few months ago, I did an episode called, Is There a Dark Side to Being a Team Player? While this is a similar concept, I want to take a slightly different approach this time because so many of you are in the process of onboarding new team members and preparing your team for the fall. First, I want to both expose how damaging our current idea of a team player really is. Then, I'll give you some takeaways on how to better assess team members and build your team in a way that benefits everyone. Specifically, to build your team so that everyone is contributing in a way that creates a healthy and productive team, but also allows for individuals to set healthy boundaries for themselves at work. And while that may seem like something that's nice, but not really your problem. When folks have healthy boundaries, it gives them the space to both be more engaged and productive at work. I'm not a huge sports fan, but I played tennis and softball back in the day. And one of the things that I've noticed is that when sports teams talk about being a team player, it's very different than what we tend to think of as being a team player in higher ed. So I'm gonna start out with a sports analogy that I think most of you will be able to follow. But even if you don't get sports, don't worry. I'll absolutely tie this back into work. Just stick with me. So let's say you're the coach of a competitive softball team. Maybe you're not pros, but most folks are there because they want to win. And not to take you out of the story so early, but at work, I bet that most of you and your team members just want to do what's best to help students, aka win. So I think this is the right setup for the analogy. So if you want to be a winning team, as the coach, you have a few jobs. One, to assess the skills of each player to find out where they belong on the field. If you've inherited the team, you may have noticed that some people seem to be in the right spot, but some others may not be playing the right positions or need to improve their skills to excel. If you were down a few players, you might have recruited some that were really great at other positions, like maybe John was successful as shortstop on another team, so you snatched him up. Maybe Alana 
was the catcher on a championship team, so you asked her to join yours. Now, I know some of you aren't even playing with a full team, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. All the members of your team will have to have some basic skills to be successful, like throwing accurately, catching a ball in motion, hitting a ball, and running bases. But at the end of the day, each of your players will be filling a specific position that functions in a specific way. You'll need a pitcher, catcher, someone on all the bases, a shortstop, and three people in the outfield to make a complete team. Each of those positions has different duties and responsibilities for the team. Now, maybe you're already asking, doesn't it make sense to cross-train everyone on the team so you can move people around if necessary? Sure, a little cross-training can be helpful. After all, If someone's injured or there's an emergency and someone can't make the game, you may need to adjust your players. But keep in mind, the more effort players put into learning other positions, the less time and energy they're putting into mastering their own positions and the specialized knowledge and skills that come with it. When you think of successful athletes, they specialize in one position. They're not changing every game. Besides, we've already talked about everyone needing to have some similar baseline of transferable skills, so that should cover most situations where someone might have to cover for another player. Okay, back to your softball team. If you're a softball coach, what would you say makes a great team player? Or to really go all in on the sports analogy, what makes an MVP? At the core, an MVP is a person who excels at their specific job and works collaboratively with the team to bring about a win. They excel so much in their role that their contribution made a huge impact on the outcome of the game. That seems simple enough, right? Athletes who become the MVP of a game, or maybe even a season, are typically the ones who push themselves during practice, and maybe even practice more than the team does to make sure they're in top form. But what they don't do is push themselves to the point of exhaustion or injury. After all, a tired and injured player is no good to the team. They do everything they can to build on their talents, develop their skills, and practice until they're almost perfect in their role. Yes, they work with other players on the team to bring about the success, but they stay in their lane. Now note, if you've been a longtime listener, you're going to notice that this very much echoes the Clifton Strengths philosophy. Now, what do you think of when you're considering who's an MVP on your non-softball higher ed team? Is it someone who excels in their role? Someone who invests in their talents and professional development to make sure they know everything they can and develop the right skills to bring out their very best in the role? Maybe that first part. But usually, we prefer MVPs to spend their time helping out other players and finding new ways to contribute instead of investing in their role or maintaining a reasonable workload. When you talk about your team players, is it the people who pick up the slack from less motivated or less skilled team members? Maybe it's someone who not only does their job, but also volunteers for other jobs that seemingly need to get done. Do those people stay late and come in early? Do they answer emails and calls at home? Or, all too often these days, if you're down a position or two, Is it your team players who willingly agree to take over those duties? When I'm coaching supervisors, the issue of being a team player often comes up. 
What do I do about Brendan? It's not that he isn't doing his job, but he's just not a team player. Sure, he does his job, but that's it. I wish he could be more like Lachey. She just jumps in wherever she's needed in the office. There are, of course, team members that aren't doing the basics of their job, but we'll get to underperformers. So let's think about what this would look like on the ball field. You've got a great pitcher, one who's amazing at striking out the other team. They spend plenty of time practicing to make sure their aim is solid and communicating with the catcher to select the best strategy for each batter. But what if instead of focusing on pitching, they decided they needed to be a team player like the ones we value so much in higher ed? Maybe they've noticed the player on first base isn't super quick. Sometimes they miss the balls thrown to them, or even when they catch them, they aren't always fast enough to tag out the runner. So your pitcher, being the good team player they are, decides that in addition to pitching, they're going to make sure that they keep an eye on first base. That way, they can move to catch any balls headed that way, and if necessary, sprint to the base to make sure runners get tagged out. Now, if you're like most supervisors in higher ed, that sounds pretty awesome, right? There was a weakness on the team, and this great team player stepped up and took care of it. But what's the problem with this scenario? Well, first, the pitcher is now dividing their attention between pitching and covering first. Are they going to be pitching their best if they're also worried about covering first? Probably not. The second problem, outside of the game, your pitcher might feel like instead of spending all of their time practicing pitching, they need to spend some time working on first base related skills. Now, if they're really motivated, they might not decrease their pitching practice time, but instead add on time to practice those first base skills. That's going to impact their overall performance because they're going to be exhausted. And when you're tired, you're more likely to injure yourself. During a game, this additional role is going to wear them down more quickly, both mentally and physically. So the quality of both their pitching, the thing that you need them to be great at, and everything else is going to suffer. The third problem is how this might impact their relationship with the person on first base. Sure, maybe sometimes they're appreciative of the help. I mean, people need help every once in a while. But if it keeps happening, they may start to resent it. Hey, bleephole, I can do my job. You're not even giving me a chance. A strong team needs to trust each other and communicate to win games. So unless the person playing first base has specifically asked the pitcher to help cover, there's a good chance it's going to cause problems between the two of them. And finally, if your pitcher is constantly covering for the person on first base, what motivation does the first baseman have to improve? Sure, maybe they're embarrassed or competitive, and that's going to make them try harder. But even if that's the case, see my third point from just a second ago. The solution to underperformance is either more skill development and practice until they get it, moving them to a more suitable position, or removing them from the team. Ignoring the problem by putting one of your quote-unquote team players on it is just going to divide that person's focus and run them down more quickly. Yeah, it's easier for you in the short run because you save the time you'd need to invest in that underperforming player. But in the long term, you've created two problems. This example just talks about the pitcher helping one other position. But in higher ed, 
We're typically not talking about just helping out in one area, are we? We're talking about the pitcher pitching, covering first, running up and getting the ball if the catcher drops it, and maybe even washing the uniforms after the game. With each new task, that's energy and focus taking away from someone's primary duties. Each additional quote-unquote team player responsibility means a decrease in the quality of everything they do. And we may call these people team players, but they're not actually bringing the team closer to victory. They're just trying to keep the team from falling apart. On a competitive softball team, that means losing. In higher ed, it means our students may not be getting what they need no matter how hard we're working. Now let's address this idea that remaining team members need to absorb the duties of staff who leave or are out for a long time. On a softball team, maybe somebody's sick or injured, or maybe there's an emergency and they just can't make it to the game. Can one person cover two positions? Yes, if they're physically close enough. When I played softball, I'd occasionally have to cover center and left field, or center and right field, but when I did, my performance for either position wasn't as good. Why? Because it was physically impossible for me to be in both places at once, so I had to place myself in the middle, scan both areas, and run back and forth wherever the ball was headed. That means it was more physically and mentally exhausting trying to cover both positions. Now, I didn't mind for a game or two, but if I'd been told I was covering two positions forever, it definitely would have impacted my enjoyment and engagement. Now, if I'd been asked to cover three positions, I probably would have just quit the team because that's not reasonable or sustainable. Many of you are dealing with more than one missing player. Either you're waiting to fill fill the role, or too bad, so sad, the position is being eliminated. Either way, the expectation from administration is that your team keep doing all the things. In a softball game, you can play with eight people, but any fewer than that, and you have to forfeit. You can't just say, hey, don't worry about it. Chris is going to cover all of the outfield. Becky can pitch and catch. No problem. Without enough players to cover all the key positions, one of two things will happen. One, your team's going to get their bleep kicked. Two, everyone is going to be exhausted and possibly get hurt from trying to do more on the field than is reasonable. Okay, so actually both of those things can happen, but no matter what combination of those things occur, it's not going to lead to a winning team. A surviving one? Maybe. But at what cost? As a supervisor, you are the coach of your team. And this isn't a sports analogy. I've talked about how important coaching is as a supervisor in other episodes. A softball coach is very involved in both the practice and the game. During the practice, they don't just schedule the practice and say, okay, you know your positions, call me later and let me know if there are any problems because I've got stuff to do. They're watching their team to find out who needs more work on batting or catching fly balls or whatever. Then they make a plan so those players learn the skills and get the practice they need to be successful. Same thing during a game. Great coaches don't just come to the game, tell everybody what position they're playing, go to the dugout to do paperwork, and then wonder what happened when the team didn't win. They are actively involved in putting the right person in the right place at the right time. They make changes as necessary and communicate with the entire team to make sure everyone is on the same page as they go. And when things don't go well in the game, they immediately 
start addressing that during the next practice to make sure players have the skills they need to do their job well. Or they consider moving people to positions that are better suited to their talents. And if they don't, those problems continue to impact the entire team's success. What good coaches do not do is pull aside their pitcher and say, hey, I don't know if you noticed, but Sam is having a little trouble at first base and I don't have the time to help him improve. Can you cover that position too? We've already talked about why that's a losing strategy. When your pitcher can't focus on pitching, they're no longer going to be a great pitcher. And perhaps even more importantly, they can end up injured because they're trying to do too much. MVPs are valuable players because they know their role in the game and spend all of their energy and time focused on being the best at that role. They depend on other people to do their role well and work together to win. They are not valuable players because they run around the field doing everybody's job. When we do that, what we're really doing is asking our strongest team members to cover for systemic issues. Maybe the problem is the work-to-personnel ratio, aka too much work, not enough staff, isn't balanced. Maybe the problem is that your institution just isn't organized well, so departments aren't doing the things that they need to do to maximize productivity. Maybe you haven't set up the right systems for yourself and your team. And just to be clear, I don't mean that judgmentally. You're probably just as overwhelmed as your team, if not more. And if you're like most supervisors in higher ed, you've never been given any sort of quality training to educate yourself and build the skills that you need to be an effective supervisor. If you don't have the right systems in place to manage your team's performance, develop your team's skills, it may seem like the solution is to have everybody pitch in where they can, but that's not effective and it ultimately hurts both your team's performance and their well-being. You need to stop thinking of the folks who run themselves ragged to the point they can't possibly give 100% everywhere as being team players. When you do, all you're doing is wearing out those individuals and keeping them from investing in their success in their role. You're also undervaluing those team members who are focusing on their jobs and not buying into the idea that they should distract and exhaust themselves by doing 20 other things. Having healthy work boundaries is a strength, not a problem. And finally, you're failing your team members who may need to develop more skills and get more practice to become more proficient. No matter how talented and experienced an athlete is, they still practice with the team. They still learn new and better ways to perform. They focus on excelling in their position and communicating with their teammates to get the best outcome. Supervising isn't about crossing your fingers and hoping that you get perfect employees who know exactly how to do everything perfectly without any investment or development. There are no such teams. Now at this point, you may be thinking, okay, I get it, but there are no specific rules in higher ed about when a team gets to forfeit. My supervisor or administration still expects my team of three to do the work of five. What am I supposed to do about that, Anne? That is an excellent question. And the answer is to start saying no. The answer is to start setting reasonable and firm boundaries for you and your team so you can be successful. And if they, they meaning your supervisor or administration, won't listen to your no, then you need to let your team fail in achieving these ridiculous expectations. 
One of the reasons people keep asking you and your team for more and more is because you've been delivering more and more, even when it's costing you and your team your well-being. So stop. I've had several friends complain that they keep getting more and more work and they don't know how much longer they can keep increasing their load. And I said, why would they stop giving you work when you always get it done and you always get it done well? And I mean, really, why would they? You saying, I can't keep going like this, might make them feel bad for a hot second, but then they remember how much they need you to do so they look good, and they go into a pep talk about how awesome you are and how you can make this work. And so many of you are trying to absorb this extra work yourself so you can protect your team. And while that seems like a noble thing to do, you trying to embody this false idea of a team player is just as bad, if not worse, than your team members doing so. You need to be focused on your job, supervising your team. Getting distracted from your role does not help your team. If you're not actively managing your team's performance, helping them develop as a professional, and improving your team's engagement, you are not going to have a winning team. The best thing that you can do for you and your team is to start setting realistic expectations and boundaries. Stop believing the lie that team players are the ones constantly jumping around all over the place to take care of duties that belong to someone else, including hypothetical people that don't even work at the institution because we can't afford it right now. But if that someone else works for you, then you need to coach them to success or remove them from the team. And if that someone else is a person that quit years ago, then you need to work with your supervisor to decide what the priorities are for your department so you can reorganize and adjust the expectations for your team. There are way too many members of your team being hurt because they're being stretched in too many directions. Now, these wounds may not be sprained ankles or a torn rotator cuff, but just because you don't see them limping around campus does not mean that they are okay. People on your team are literally getting sick because of the stress at work, especially if they believe they have to live up to this dysfunctional idea of what a team player looks like. Your team's mental health, emotional well-being, quality of life are being negatively impacted. And if we're being honest you're probably being impacted in the same way. And even if you don't super care about how your people feel or whether they're tired, all of this is negatively impacting their productivity, their engagement, and how well they're serving your students. Winning teams are ones where everyone is focused on the things that they do best in a way that makes them shine in their role in the organization. That includes you focusing on your role as a coach. The real team players support the rest of the team by doing their own job well and don't get distracted by what other players are or aren't doing. Yes, they occasionally pick up a ball that comes their way to help out the team, but their primary focus is always on improving their own performance and making sure their responsibilities are covered. In the last episode, I talked about three ways to build a winning team. If you haven't listened to that, I'd encourage you to do so. I talk about how important it is to focus on professional development, create better teamwork strategies, and yes, that includes focusing on people's talents, and improving your own management skills. Now, I know you're worn out from two years of COVID, and who knows how many years of higher ed, but things will not get better by hoping people are motivated enough to run around and pick up the pieces. Things will only get better by investing in yourself as a supervisor, 
and investing in your team. If you're not already doing those things, the best time to start is now. And if you don't know where to begin, we've got your back. I realize that I talk a lot about the Supervisor Strengths Institute on the podcast, but I realize I've neglected to talk about all the other services we provide to support supervisors in higher ed. We offer workshops or retreats that can be done either virtually or in person. We have more information on the website about our workshops. It's www.strengthsuniversity.org backslash team services. Or if you have questions, just shoot me an email at ann at strengthsuniversity.org. Now, typically we do workshops and retreats for individual teams, but as we were thinking about the fall semester, we wanted to provide some options for small teams. If you have 10 or 20 people on your team, it's pretty easy to make an investment in a half day or full day workshop. But if you have a smaller team, like three or five people, that may seem like quite a bit of money per person when you break down cost. Now it's still an excellent investment, but it just might be a harder sell to your supervisor. To provide more options for small teams, Alicia and I have decided to do two virtual workshops this July for smaller teams. For just $125 a person, you and your team will participate in a three and a half hour workshop covering strength spaces and how to use strengths on a team. And it includes doing some team building exercises to help folks start focusing on one another's talents. To make this feel more personalized, we'll put each team into their own breakout room for discussions and during the team building exercises. You'll have the option of purchasing Clifton Strengths codes if you need them for team members who haven't taken the assessment yet. We've decided the workshops are going to be on July 14th and 27th. We're still working on the registration pages, but we're going to have that up soon. So if you're not already on our mailing list, sign up now so you get that information as soon as it becomes available. Head to our website, www.strengthsuniversity.org. Click on the pop-up and you'll both get a free supervisor support bundle and join our mailing list. Now, if the pop-up gets blocked, just scroll down a bit right past where we have all the university logos of the schools we've worked with, and you can sign up there. I know this was a longer episode than many of the recent ones that I've done, but I hope it helped you see your team and how you should model team players in a new way. Remember, you are the coach. Your team depends on you to make sure they're playing their best every day. So invest in them and invest in yourself as a supervisor. And until next time, stay strong. Thanks for listening to My Circus, My Monkey. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as other episodes on our website, www.strengthsuniversity.org slash mycircus. If you found this podcast valuable, please share it with your friends and colleagues so we can empower and support supervisors everywhere. Finally, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. As always, Alicia and I are here to support you as you reflect on where you are and where you want to go. One great way to invest in yourself and your team is to join us for the summer cohort of the Supervisor Strengths Institute. We are revamping the Institute this summer to make it even more manageable for your busy schedule. It is the same great content, but we've condensed it 
so you can work through each week's modules and start implementing change even faster. We know that life can too easily get in the way of you staying on track, so we've also added a bonus for everyone who completes all eight weeks of learning. You will get an additional 60 minutes of our time, and you can use that for more individual coaching, a short team session, or to receive a discount on a longer team workshop. Our Summer Institute starts on May 28th. Go ahead and register now. Check it off your list. We want you, your team, and your students to shine their brightest. And that starts with you. So join us for the Summer Institute using the link in the show notes. Or if you have questions about the Institute or other services, contact us at Anne, and that's A-N-N-E, at strengthsuniversity.org. Thanks for listening to My Circus, My Monkey. You can find this episode's transcript and links as well as other episodes on our website, www.strengthsuniversity.org slash mycircus. If you found this podcast valuable, please share it with your friends and colleagues so we can empower and support supervisors everywhere. Finally, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.